Shabbat Shalom. Well, I have in my hands here an article, and it's available in the description below in the video, and it's entitled Book of the Law versus Book of the Covenant. Are they two separate books? The Malkitzedic two-book theory debunked. It's quite a mouthful, isn't it? But here is the article. Have you ever taken somebody to task only to realize a little bit later that maybe you didn't have all the information? I know that I have done that so many times with my kids, so many times with people, and then you have to backtrack and be willing later to go humbly to that person and make amends and apologize because you didn't quite have all the information. Because after reading this article, the Malkitzedic two-book theory debunked, I truly understand our author's skepticism. In fact, I would be skeptical too and an unbeliever too had I had the typical messianic um, perspective of what was being communicated from this ministry. But in reality, what's being communicated is an expansive, life-changing subject of systematic covenant theology. And without understanding that perspective, you could easily be skeptical because you don't have all the information. Because I was wondering in true reality how someone I care about, someone who I've taught with on this subject, someone who absolutely agreed and was excited about the revelations of the initial teaching of the Malkitzedic connection that came out of this ministry and the subsequent teachings thereafter could end up backtracking and writing an article the Malkitzedic two-book theory debunked. How does that happen? Because I truly believe, after all, that I've been taken to task, if you will, because our author doesn't have or didn't look at all the information on what establishes a covenant of promise. And therein lies the key. Systematic covenant theology. What are the covenants of promise? Because if you don't have that vital key piece of information, you could end up an unbeliever and a skeptic. Now, after studying and reading this, I understand how our author has ended up finding himself in a maze, lost in a maze of confusion, and in fact, the view of the author is that I was the one that drug him into the maze in the first place 
and led him astray. And I can understand that. And that understanding, that understanding alone gives me great, great cause for hope. It truly does. Because it's written in the Psalms, in Psalm 25, verse 14. The secret, listen, the secret of Yahuwah is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. We are so blessed that he has shown us his covenant. But to some, in the reading of the Old and the New Testament, they remain veiled, it says. So as I look upon this article, I hope to bring forth eight key points that will lift the veil, if I'm permitted to do so. Because in Acts chapter 5, verse 39, it is written that if this article, if this message, if you will, of the Zedek is truly of Elohim, which I believe that this ministry believes it is, you won't be able to stop it. And in fact, you may even discover that you're fighting against Elohim. So with that, let's look at some of the key points that I hope will bring forth the unveiling, if you will. The first thing, right off the bat, number one, I've got eight observations that I just want to bring forth. As I say, the whole article is below in the links to the description to this video. It's a lengthy article originally written by the author and then tore to the tribe's response in detail if you really want to get into the meat of it. But there's eight observations that I made that I want to just bring forth. Firstly, I was, I've got to admit, somewhat taken back by the title, including debunked in it. Because those of us that are familiar with the English language, we know that that means a laughable sham and foolish nonsense, according to the Webster's Dictionary. But this isn't a laughable sham and foolish nonsense, even if you are an unbeliever, because this is a serious subject of systematic covenant theology that needs to be handled with Kedushah, holiness and respect, because we're all in the study of theology, which is the word of Yahuwah. Even if we disagree, it's not debunking the Bible. This is something where we've got to use, I think, balance and reason and holiness when we approach the word gingerly. Because if the book of the covenant And this is the whole premise of our author, that the book of the covenant and the book of the law are separate, distinct. No, excuse me. I'm I'm blown. Oh, that is the author's opinion. Let me backtrack. Is one that the book of the covenant and the book of the law are not separate, are not distinct, but they are in fact one and the same. Now, The view of this ministry that we've taught for some time is that they are in fact separate. They are in fact totally separate and not synonymous. So I hope I made myself clear on that even though I muddled it at first. Because if the book of the covenant and the book of the law are one and the same, 
which our author assumes, then you have to ask yourself the question, what Torah, this is the key, what Torah sanctioned change of law does our author actually recognize? Because throughout this whole article, the author takes the position of a no change of law. There has been no change of the law. That is the author's position throughout the whole article. And of course, if Torah to the tribes is teaching there has been a change of the law, that the book of the covenant and the book of the law are not the same, you can see that that would cause an issue if systematic covenant theology has not been properly understood. So, without further ado, the first thing that I was taken aback of was the title debunked because of the seriousness of the subject. But then I read Genesis chapter 49 verse 10 in the Old Testament and it tells us that there's going to be a change of the law. Now, this change is actually written in the Torah and it's about a future prophecy. So it's not something that me or anybody else has added to the law. It's already in the Torah. In Genesis 49.10, it tells us that there is going to be a change of the law once this messianic figure or Shiloh comes. And there is what's called the until clause. Until means I'm going to do this until I go over here. Until impending change. And then Hebrews tells us in chapter 7 verse 12 and confirms the Torah that now with Messiah, who we know on the other side of it, who is Shiloh, that there in fact has been a change of law. Confirmed New Testament and Old Testament witness. So how does our author reconcile having an opinion, a belief system that denies the change of law that is encoded within the Torah and then confirmed by the New Testament. Because that's a problem. Not only are you in disagreement with the Old Testament, you're actually in disagreement with the New Testament revelation. Because adding Jesus to Judaism is not the answer. And it's actually rightly rejected by both Christianity and Judaism itself. But our author believes that you can just add Jesus to Judaism and keep the whole of the law without change in violation of both the Old Testament until clause and the New Testament change of law clause. That's a problem. That's a problem that needs to be studied and you can't just use the word debunked to push that aside because I believe it's something that truly has merit based upon the word of Yah. For us to study this position, we've got to take time. Hebrews 7.12, for the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change 
also of the Torah. It's including the Genesis 49.10 until clause because the author of Hebrews understands and recognizes that Yahusha is Shiloh and he has come and done the work of reformation and brought in that until change clause from the very Torah itself. So to ignore that is a major violation of Scripture confirmed by the New Testament. So my second observation was making either or choices with consequences, consequence one or consequence two. What do I mean? A, either the law was changed with Yahusha, or B, the law was not changed with Yahusha. Now, if B is true, which is what our author believes, then we're left with one of two choices. One of two choices. That's it. Number one, you can choose to be lawless. The law in its entirety, it's just done away with. It's nailed to the cross. And what do you end up with? Antinomium, traditional 20th and 21st century Christianity, which is what? It's a status quo position that hasn't changed for over 2,000 years. Or number two, you end up being Judaized. What do I mean? The law is unchanged and we're to keep it in its entirety, including animal sacrifices, it's actually the Judaizing of Jesus. And again, that is a status quo position that is rightly rejected by Christianity because they chose number one. But it's also rightly rejected by Judaism because they don't believe that you can bring Jesus into the religion, and it is a religion, of Judaism. But in the 20th century, where there was the creation of what's called the Messianic or Hebrew Roots Movement, that has convinced a bunch of people that you can actually bring Jesus along into traditional Judaic theology. But the reality of that is that it's not true. You can't. You actually can't. It ends up leading many people astray. Because at the end of the day, they realize that they have to make a choice. The law in its entirety or leave Jesus Yahushua behind. That's a problem. That's a problem. I offer a third option. But, and you've always got to watch out for those big buts. I offer a third option, but it's contingent upon accepting the truth of A, that the law has, in fact, changed Genesis 49.10, Hebrews 7.12. And that third option that is contingent upon accepting the truth that the law has changed, you now have the option that the New Testament has been given 
as Malkizedic Book of the Covenant Torah based upon better promises given to Abraham. Now that is end time revelation for the saints. If you have the ears to hear and the eyes to see. Torah to the tribes teaches and believes A3. The law has in fact changed and it has been given now as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 but now he hath obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he that Shiloh the mediator of a better covenant which has been given as Torah based upon better promises that is the anointing of the message that's going forth from Torah to the tribes. But it is based upon the understanding of systematic covenant theology. Which means you have to take pause to study it. Otherwise, you could end up with not all the information. Then that could lead you to misunderstanding and skepticism and eventually unbelief. And after reading this article, I truly understand our author's skepticism and unbelief. I truly do. And it gives me that hope. That gives me that hope. Because I saw, when I first started teaching the truth of the Malkitzedic, I saw the witness of the Holy Spirit testify to both me and the author that the revelation of this message was absolutely for the end time saints. So what happened? What happened that you could then debunk the very revelation that you confirmed through the Spirit? Again, I just think what happens is sometimes, like the parable of the sower, sometimes people can creep in and they can poison the well or you count the cost and maybe the cost is too much. But again, we have to look at the parable of the sower and we need to be on guard not to let things get into our garden that can cloud the message. Because we all have to be vigilant. Because the reason that we're in this mess is why. Adam was given a charge to Shema to guard the garden. And he didn't do that. And he allowed thistles and thorns and Satan to come in there. And we have to be just as vigilant in these days with the stewardship and the guardianship of Yahusha and the message of covenant Torah fidelity. We truly do. So the third observation that I made in reading this article was linguistically, textually, we actually have unconnected and disparate words in the Masoretic text, in the Septuagint and the New Testament. How can Book of the Law, in all seriousness, and Book of the Covenant be one and the same when they are disparate words not only in the Hebrew Masoretic text, but in the Greek Septuagint, confirmed by the Greek in the New Testament. 
If Yahuwah wanted them to be one and the same, he's done it throughout the Bible. He brings clarity through the language of his word. We have in Exodus chapter 24, verse 7, book of the covenant. The Hebrew word there is sefer brit, translated as book of the covenant. It was a book of the covenant that was proposed to Israel. Israel accepted, Yahuwah, all that you said we shall do. Then it was blood ratified. And finally the elders went up the mountain and they had a covenant confirming meal. The covenant, the Brit, was given as Torah. And the Hebrew word for this is diatheke. Diatheke. It's translated into the Septuagint and the New Testament as diatheke. Book of the Covenant or Sefer Brit. Then in Deuteronomy 28 verse 6, we come to a totally disparate Hebrew word. Sefer Torah. Totally distinct. Totally separate. Torah. And this is Torah. Sefer Torah. Book of the Law. Which is absolutely separate. It has none of the attributes of a covenant. There's no proposal. There's no acceptance. There's certainly no blood ratification. And there's no covenant confirming meal. And it doesn't anywhere near have anything to do with Abraham. doesn't attach back to him. It is, in fact, a word that comes across many times in the New Testament in the Greek word nomos. So again... Textually, linguistically, these two, the book of the covenant and the book of the law, have nothing in common. Nothing whatsoever. No proposal, no acceptance, no blood ratification, no covenant confirming meal, no connection back to Abraham with the book of the law. And it's a totally separate Hebrew word, Greek word, and a totally separate word in the New Testament. Why would that be so if Yahuwah wanted to communicate that they're one and the same? They simply cannot be one and the same. This is called exegesis where you are extracting information from the Bible. Eisegesis is when you're putting your own thoughts into it and trying to wrench a position out of the text that isn't there. And we have to be very careful about doing that. We truly do. So linguistically, textually, the third thing that I observed is that we have unconnected and disparate words in the Masoretic, Septuagint, and New Testament. That To me, that's strong evidence because that is three solid, concrete, building block platforms to witness that these seferim, these books, are not one and the same. Does that make sense? This is very, I'm very systematic in my approach to this. Now, the fourth observation that I made when I was reading through this article, outside the Ark of the Covenant is separate from what's inside the Ark of the Covenant. Again, when I'm inside, it's very different than when I'm outside in the weather, especially in Oregon. It's separate. It's, I have to put a coat on and 
get an umbrella, and it's a totally different experience. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 26, take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of Yahuwah, your Elohim, that it may be there as a witness against thee, for I know the rebellion. Of course, the rebellion references back to the golden calf sin. But what's really interesting is in the article, the author makes the following statement. Now, be observant and listen to the author's statement. And it was this law book called the Book of the Covenant that was placed on the side of the Ark of the Covenant as a witness to the people. Let me read that again. This is the author's statement. And you can understand now why he's in a maze. And it was this law book called the Book of the Covenant that was placed on the side of the Ark of the Covenant as a witness to the people. So I have compassion, empathy, and I understand because our author truly believes, literally, truly believes that it was the book of the covenant that was placed on the side of the ark of the covenant as a witness to the people. But you and I just read, take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant. This is huge because that premise of misunderstanding is thread throughout the whole article. And a false premise establishes what? A false conclusion. And error begets error. Because I was like, how could this come about? But then I made this fourth observation And now I see and I have hope. Because truly, I have made errors. You have made errors. But the difference we pray is that when somebody gently and in love approaches us and admonishes us and say, Hey, look at this. Because I used to teach that we couldn't keep Shabbat. I grew up having bangers and mash. And now I don't eat pork because somebody came to me and they shared Bible truths with me. And I saw it in the word and I made repentance and accepted. So I have hope because we have all got to this point because of what? At some point in our life, the truth of the scripture prevails over our misunderstandings. Doesn't it? And doesn't that give you hope? It really does give me hope for the future that Yahweh has for his covenant saints. Hope. Our author, again, has a different understanding. You can see it right there within the article. How do we reconcile such amazed statement from our author and wonder why there is such skepticism throughout the article where the difference between covenants contained in law 
as opposed to ordinances contained in law, both with differing administrations, isn't even observed by the writer. If you can't observe the difference between covenants contained in law and ordinances contained in law, then you haven't studied systematic covenant theology. You're going to debunk what I am trying to communicate from this ministry. Because what we find in Colossians 2.14 is that in fact... It is the ordinances contained in law that have been blotted out. That's a big thing. That's referring to the book of the law. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, it is in fact the ordinances contained in law that have been abolished. And remember, Abolished was a dedicated phrase that comes from Ezra chapter 4 and Ezra chapter 6. We can't use it as if it's ripped and burned because that's not what abolish means. And we covered that a few weeks ago in our Book of the Law um, series in the first part. These dedicated scriptural phrases, whether it is the until clause of Genesis 49 verse 10... The change of law, Hebrews 7.12, and what is against us, Colossians chapter 2 verse 14, that was blotted out. Where does the against us dedicated phraseology come from? You can't read Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 and say, well, it was our sin debt that was against us that was blotted out. Because the dedicated phraseology of against us appears in the Deuteronomic text of Deuteronomy 31. It's in there multiple, multiple times referencing the book of the law that was against you. So when the Colossians get the communication of what was blotted out that was against them, It's going back to that dedicated phrase, Deuteronomy 31. Read the chapter in your own time. The book of the law was against us because it was a witness against breaking the covenant. It was called the Ark of the Covenant because inside of it, distinct and separate than what was outside of it, outside of it, the book of the law witnessed to them breaking the covenant. And now in Yahusha, because Shiloh has come, that witness that was against them, the book of the law, has been blotted out. This, again, you have to slow it down and go back to where the Bible words originate from to make the full thing come into view. Otherwise, we end up with this pinhole view. And of course, you become a big skeptic of the Bible at that point. So again, these things, I think, just take time. Take time. I didn't get this overnight. This is something where I've just been patiently working and working through it. Now, you have to understand, right now I've got a a 200-page spiral-bound book that a lady has sent me that she truly believes is true prophecy. And do you know my approach? I'm super excited to read it. I go to bed at night. 
I got my heated blanket on, I got my little headlamp, and I look forward every night to reading through it. I've got no opinion. I'm not for it or against it. I am open to letting the Word convict me. And guess what? I'm super excited about that because I trust that the Spirit within me will give me the conviction and the testimony of the Word will bring forth the revelation. I'm not intimidated. I'm not threatened. I'm not opposed. I'm not for. I am open because I am allowed myself to be open because I trust the Spirit in me and because I have a good foundational understanding of the Word that I do not believe that I'll be deceived. That's how we're to approach things. But I don't have the full revelation of what the lady has written. I didn't write it. She did. She's been studying this for 20 years. She's got way more revelation, but wants me to understand. So therefore, I have to be patient. I can't just say, no, I don't believe anything what you've written in there. Because I have to allow the Spirit to work in me. In fact, there's references within this article that have now, if I'm a good steward, I'll go and get some more references and see if I can cross-examine it from different perspectives to see. And to me, this is the journey of Bible study and revelation. And I just love it. I don't have the heart of trying to shut things down unless, of course, we know that it's not the Word. But what's being taught from this ministry has got reams and reams and reams of Scripture attached to it. And like I say, if you look in the article below, in the link below, there's a lot of Scripture produced in me addressing the very, very author's article in the first place. Hebrews 7.11 If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. But the book of the covenant was given at Exodus chapter 19 through Exodus chapter 24. Before there was a Levitical priesthood, correct? So this is another confirmation that the book of the covenant and the book of the law, the law, are separate and distinct laws. Because the book of the law was given as a result of the Levitical priesthood, which was a result of the golden calf breach. But the problem is, People string it all together. And then that causes great confusion. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the Torah. Galatians 3.10 For as many are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Galatians 3.12 testifies, and the law is not of faith. The man that doeth them shall live in them. We've got a problem. Because in Exodus chapter 19, verse 8, and Exodus chapter 24, verse 3, the children of Israel answered what? 
all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. That's an act of what? That's an act of faith. And they accepted the giving of the book of the covenant, which was given as law from the mountain. But Galatians, is Paul confused? Because he just told us in Galatians 3.12, the law is not of faith. Exodus chapter 19 verse 8 and Exodus chapter 24 verse 3 testify that the book of the covenant is in fact of faith. In fact, it took a great act of faith to say all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And they agreed to his proposal. Then later on, they ratified it with blood. And then they went up the mountain and had a covenant-confirming meal. So they accepted the book of the covenant in faith. So Galatians 3.12, track with me if you can. Galatians 3.12 cannot be referring to the book of the covenant, can it? It is impossible. It is impossible. That means it must be referring to a separate, disparate, and distinct law that was not of faith. What would that be? The book of the law wasn't added by faith. It was added for transgressions. The transgressions associated later with the golden calf. Galatians 3.19. Wherefore then serveth the law. The book of the law is in view here. It was added because of transgressions. This is the testimony of the word. That the book of the covenant and the book of the law cannot be synonymous. They cannot be one and the same. It is scripturally impossible. Based upon the evidence of the word alone. This is a clear distinction in books, a clear distinction in law, one accepted in faith, the book of the covenant, the other one imposed for transgressions at the golden calf and the added Levitical priesthood, the book of the law. You were no longer a nation of priests, but you were denigrated to a nation with a Levitical high priest, an ironic high priest. That's a denigration from the prior elevated status. So when Yahushua returns... Are we going to remain in a denigrated status? Or will he return us to the elevated status where you will be, as Peter says, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, lively living stones? Because it's not a tabernacle made by the hands of men, but a tabernacle made by the pierced hands of the Messiah that has brought us to this great revelation. Wow, what a people! This is the end time people that is being raised up according to the book of Revelation. Those of you that have the testimony of Yahushua and keep the commandments. Who who would not want to be a part of this great company of saints? I offer you pagan syncretism and lawlessness on one end. Or I offer you Judaism on the other. Or the offer is covenant 
Torah fidelity with the pierced hands of Messiah. It's a no-brainer to me. I don't understand. It must be availing in the reading of the Old Testament and the New Testament, 2 Corinthians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, it is written, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Messiah, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. My suggestion to you through the reading of Scripture is that the book of the law is in fact the schoolmaster. Romans chapter 3 verse 21. But now the righteousness of Elohim, that's a dedicated phrase, righteousness, Zadik, Malkit Zadik, the righteousness of Elohim, without the law, the book of the law, without it, it's been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And Romans chapter 3 verse 31, do we then make void the Torah through faith? Elohim forbid. Yea, we establish the law. We have to rightly divide the word of truth and we establish the book of the covenant that was given as Torah based upon better promises in Messiah. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 8. Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not. Neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O Elohim. He taketh away the first, so that he may establish the second. First, second. That's a clear separation and distinction, is it not? A clear separation and distinction again. So these are the things that have just been really, really pressing on me through the Ruach. Now the fifth observation that I made that makes me understand where our author is getting mazed and confused is the Deuteronomy misunderstanding. The Deuteronomy misunderstanding. Deuteronomy... Devarim is not, let me clarify, it is not the book of the covenant. Now our author believes that it is, which would muddle the waters, so much so. The book of the covenant is not found in Deuteronomy. In fact, the Deuteronomy text is in fact the very midst of the book of the law. The book of the law is stated seven times for clarity in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 18, 28 verse 58, 28 verse 61, 29 verse 21, 30 verse 10 and 31 verse 24 and 31 verse 26. Not once, not once is the book of the covenant referenced or found past Exodus chapter 24, 11 in the whole of the Torah. The next time it's mentioned, 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 2. So our author has a false premise that causes grand confusion. 
And that false premise is that the book of the covenant is found in Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is, in fact, the book of the covenant. You can understand now why that would sow so much confusion in the mind of the author. It, it truly would. Because that false premise then leads to a totally false conclusion of synonymous books. I can understand that now. But what we have here is a witness of seven references of Scripture confirming that Deuteronomy is none other than the book of the law. Does that make sense? That's huge to me. Now, the sixth observation that I made was the author came up with there is no... This was his premise. Again, this is a false premise, but this was a premise, and I understand this. And I don't know whether it was not because of investigation. I don't know. I don't know that. But the premise of the author was there is, number one, no historical theological support from extra-biblical sources that these are two books. And number two, he says there is no Old Testament proof that these are two books. And finally, number three, there is no New Testament proof. Now, initially, I glossed over number one. I thought, well, maybe there isn't any historical theological support from extra-biblical sources. I'm not really one to be too concerned about extra-biblical sources. That doesn't really bear much in my theology because I only need to see it in the Word. I'm not convinced by what men say or don't say. That really doesn't pertain to me. So I didn't really address that. Then one evening I thought, well, maybe I should just have a look and see. And I found, in fact, that the book of Jubilees, an extra-biblical source, actually starts with verse 1 of verse 1 of the book of the law. Now, the chances that the book of Jubilees would actually open up with verse 1 of verse 1 of the book of the law clearly testifies to me of a separate and disparate book of the law. It opens up with Exodus chapter 24 verse 11. Come up to me on the mount and I will give you two tables of stone of the law and of the commandment which I have written that you may teach them. The chances out of all of the verses of all of scripture that the book of Jubilees, an extra biblical work that is not scripture, would hone in on that very verse is astounding, astounding, if you're looking for extra-biblical support, which I don't. But to address the author's first point, I found that very interesting. Then I thought, well, Christianity itself supports a distinction in law. Back in the 19th century, theologians knew that there was a change when Yahushua came. They didn't recognize it in its full covenant reality, but they knew that there was a distinction between what they termed, unbiblical phrases, but they termed them, they coined the phrase, there's the moral law and the 
ceremonial law, a distinction in law. So even Christianity testifies that there is some kind of change. Now, in the end, they got 1 plus 2 equals 4. Let's do away with the law. Now, the math is a little crazy, but then again, they've got three days in the grave, and you've got Friday night, and he rose on Sunday. So we can understand, you know, the mathematics there somewhere went astray over the past 2,000 years. Because last time I counted, crucifixion on Good Friday and raising from the dead on Sunday morning is not three nights and three days in the graves. So I can understand how they can get one plus one equals four with the separation of the moral law and the ceremonial law. But be that as it may, Christianity historically does recognize what? a term of distinction in law, which is huge. So there's some evidence right there. My second point, and then thirdly, the Old Testament proof is the until clause in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. And the New Testament proof is the Hebrews 7, 11 change of law clause, is there not? So all three of the author's premises have been proven to be false premises. Therefore, it collapses under the weight of this evidence. But there's others as well. I was very interested to see, of course, even Rashi, the Jewish rabbi, believes that the book of the law and the book of the covenant were separate and disparate. In fact, number five, even the Jewish encyclopedia believes that the book of the covenant and the book of the law are separate. And then go back to my homeland and go to Oxford University and they're publishing from Oxford University Press. They believe that through their press of various publications that... Um, the book of the law and the book of the covenant are separate. There was a book that was published by Oxford University Press called What is the Covenant Code? The Covenant Code is that the book of the law and the book of the covenant are separate in that article. And then there was another article and book, in fact, published by the Oxford University Press. And it's entitled A Brief Introduction to the Old Testament. And it evidences that the book of the law and the book of the covenant are separate. So this isn't some unusual thing. It has been studied and studied and studied before. In fact professor of Hebrew and Semitic languages and literatures at the University of Pennsylvania, Professor Jeffrey Tigay, he actually understands that they were separate and distinct scrolls, which again, this is all evidenced in the very article below here. Now, you've got the more liberal um, theologians, and they break the Torah up into um, separate writers. They don't believe, these liberal scholars, that the Torah was written just by Moses. And um, that's um, more of a um, historical, theological um, interpretation according to the modern documentary hypothesis. But they believe that the Eloist, or E, 
actually the Elohist or E text separates the book of the covenant as an original independent text before the giving of the book of the law. So the weight of the false premises of our author in items 1, 2, and 3 in the article below collapse upon greater study, which basically then leaves you with great speculation and doubt about what's going to be written in the subsequent pages. It did for me. So again, these are things that to me really, really stood out because at the end of the day, how are we to research this, we have to make sure that we do our due diligence before we publish something. The seventh observation that I made was that many people, including our author, get, um, I don't know if it's confused, or just think maybe that Moses went up the mountain once. Now, what happens in the article that our author wrote, our author's source of confusion is our author makes a statement about Moshe's first ascent up Mount Sinai. But it's actually his fifth ascent. So if you're confusing Moshe's first ascent, and you skip over his second ascent, his third ascent, his fourth ascent, and it's actually his fifth ascent, are you missing a bunch of scriptural information? Huge! Which could cause you to establish a false premise and therefore draw a false conclusion and this is the vein that goes through the whole article and now I have understanding I truly do because I'm like well yeah I'd be totally a skeptic as well in fact I'd be an unbeliever and I think I would take myself to task for leading myself astray right because I don't have all the information and then I'd go off on my kid, and then finally somebody would come to me and say, well, Matthew, you didn't have all the... Um, usually it's my wife. You didn't have all the information. And then you have to go, oh, so sorry. Right? So we're human beings, right? We all make mistakes. So for me, this has really been an exercise in seeing humanity, seeing my flaws, our flaws, and really being thankful on having a heart to just sit down and let the word marinate as I'm reading this lovely lady's thesis of theology right now at night. I'm very making sure that I don't do the same thing that our author did, that I just let things marinate because the word will testify to truth. Am I doing okay? Got to check, got to check. So, how many ascents did Moses actually make up the mountain? Well, he actually made 10 ascents. And if you think his first ascent, is, but it's actually his fifth ascent, you can understand now how our author could set up a totally false premise, draw a false confusion, right? Bit of tongues there for you. A false conclusion... And then up going, Matthew led me into a maze, and um, I'm upset. I would be too at myself, but I didn't. 
I truly did, and let the word testify. So, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. I can truly see and totally understand how this would lead to huge gaping errors in premise, right? Because Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, um, Exodus chapter 20, excuse me, from chap, um, verse 1 through to Exodus chapter 23, verse 33, is not Moshe's first ascent and encounter with Yahweh which our author says it's his first ascent, it's actually his fifth ascent, which is like, whoa, that's like a lot of information you've skipped over, which, you know, wow, right? Totally I can understand. So I really, for me, I just really wanted to understand because, you know, I'm like, hey, I saw, we were like, this was super exciting, major revelation, Holy Spirit testifying, what? Now it's debunked? What happened? Would you be? Yep. Right? And I think people that have seen the video, they're like, oh, they can see the spirit moving. In fact, I mean, it's super popular video and led many people to truth because they see the excitement of two teachers coming into the revelation of the Malkitzedic anointing. It's amazing to me. So... The eighth observation, and I'll leave it at this, because it's a long article, especially once I got my hands into it. I think it started off at 15 pages, the original article, by the time I finished with it. How many pages did it end up with, Mr. Klopp? 47 or something. So, you know, you've got to, you, you, you be careful. 47, yes. Yeah. So I think it started off at 15, and then once I got my hands onto it, it's ended up at 47. So it's a, it's a you know, you want to take a little bite size every night by your bedside. And uh, you'll never sleep, no. <laughs> I haven't slept, no. The eighth observation that I made. What are you laughing at? The eighth observation that I made was making, listen... Making unsanctioned changes based upon inconvenience. If we're going to make a change, it has to be, listen to me, it has to be sanctioned by Yahweh and testified to in his written word alone. We do not get to add and take away from the word. We do not have that right. Now, if there is a clause that is in his word that sanctions a change, and then the Messiah exercises that clause, then we walk under his authority and administration in the clause that his resurrection has exercised. But that's it. That is it. Genesis 49.10, the until clause, testified by Hebrews 7.11 and 12, the change of law clause. That is sanctioned in Torah, testified in the New Testament. That is a change that we can walk in with fear and trembling. Remember how I started off this teaching? It's the fear of Yahuwah that he will reveal his covenant to those that fear him. That's the only change that I will walk in because it has been authorized by Yahweh in his word and been brought in because of the redemption that Shiloh has brought forth, testified by the writer of the book of Hebrews. 
But our author makes this statement. Quote, every command... Listen. Every commandment and statute may not be able to be kept perfectly today for a variety of reasons. There's no temple. We're not in the land. We're not under a theocratic government. There's no Levitical priesthood, etc. But not one jot or tittle shall in no way pass away until heaven and earth pass away. Did you catch it? You see, here our author makes a change in law, but it's a change in law that is not sanctioned by Scripture. It is sanctioned by human logic and reason based upon that which is inconvenient and impractical today. And that is what, listen, that is what the religion of Judaism is built upon. That is what the religion of Judaism is built upon. Judaism was invented because it was inconvenient and impractical for them to go against the nations and build the temple and start the sacrifices and go back into the land. So they created an antichrist religion based upon what is impractical and inconvenient for them today. And for us to propagate such heresy in the name of Yahusha is literally trampling on the blood of Messiah. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. And it leads to the great apostasy, the Judaizing of Jesus. So yes, I do believe this message is an end-time revelation for the saints, those in revelation that have the testimony of Messiah and keep his commandments. But we have to understand that he delivered us covenant Torah based upon better promises, Hebrews 8, 6. So our author dangerously, and many do in the Messianic movement, makes a change of law, but it's a change of law that is not sanctioned by the Bible. It is sanctioned by human logic and reason based upon what is inconvenient or impractical today. The above statement to me is somewhat hypocritical. I think, and it falls back on the old picking and choosing that's no different than what I did when I was back in the traditional church, right? Doesn't Deuteronomy chapter 27 verse 26 and Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 say, listen, cursed is everyone who does not continue in everything, absolutely everything, written in the book of the law. If you're going to say that the book of the law and the book of the covenant are one, then you have no scriptural sanctioned change of law. You've got to do everything written in it, everything, even that which is inconvenient or impractical for you today, otherwise you are cursed. And you make Messiah's crucifixion and resurrection of not. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. And that's the danger of this heresy. That's the danger. And if I have to be the voice, 
and means that I have to stay up for weeks on end to be able to give forth this message of truth and be that what it may. And, and when I'm doing it, I wrestle and work through all of the motion and at the end of the day, I'm left with compassion and empathy for my fellow man. And I am truly, truly humbled. And when then people ask me to examine various documents and whatnot, then I make sure that I give them the honor and respect that I would hope someone would have done with me here, which makes us all in a much better place. So if I look old, haggard, and wrinkled, you know it's for a good cause. Hallelujah! Hallelujah. Because I, I, I really wonder, I truly do, I really wonder how those who lay claim to being Torah observant can reconcile these obvious problems of consistency and obedience to the whole law doctrine. They're not obedient to the whole law doctrine. It's inconsistent theology. I like systematic theology. It's concrete. It's solid. It's solid. It's trustworthy. To believe that you are keeping the whole Torah, which one is clearly, by the author's own testimony, not capable of, and then conveniently switching to grace when someone like me points that out to you, I think is a terrible witness for the price that Yahushua paid, in my personal opinion. I really do. I think it's a terrible witness. Truly then, if perfection was through the Levitical priestly office, for the people had been given law under it, why yet was there need for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priestly office, having been changed, a necessity, a change of law also occurs. For indeed, an annulment of the preceding command comes about because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law perfected nothing, the book of the law, but a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to Elohim. And by how much it was not without oath-taking, but they truly becoming priests are without oath-taking. But he with oath-taking through the one saying to him, Yahweh swore and will not care to change. You are a priest to the age according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much, Yahushua has surely become that surety of a better covenant. You see, the whole Judaizing, and it is Judaizing, the whole Judaizing one book Torah doctrine is agenda driven. It's agenda driven. Those who teach this are alluding to the fact that we are still under the old imposed law the book of the law, with no change. They're not recognizing the until the time of reformation clause of Genesis 49.10 and Hebrews 9.10. Now, since the book of Hebrews, listen, because since the book of Hebrews proves unequivocally that that 
theology is incorrect. Many messianic in Hebrew roots teachers are now saying that the book of Hebrews is not authentic, it's not scripture, and it should be removed from the canon. Well, what's next? Galatians? Ephesians? Maybe Yahushua himself. How about the whole New Testament? And that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. Sadly, for thousands, and I've witnessed it over the past decade, for thousands, this has become their testimony. And many in the Hebrew Roots movement and the Messianic movement will be held accountable for leading them down that road to utter annihilation. Utter annihilation. You and I, we do have a legitimate mandate for change, but it's from Torah. That we can exercise only under the authority and administration of Yahushua. Exodus chapter 32, Genesis chapter 49 verse 10, Numbers chapter 3 verse 12, Numbers chapter 8 verse 15, Joshua chapter 5 verse 5, and like I said, Hebrews chapter 7, 11, evidence this change, a change that our author actually denies. On the reverse side, Jews... Even the rabbinic Jews, those that hate Yahushua, they deny a change also, just like our author. And they end up in the same camp together, yet they do enact a change, don't they? They enact a change that is not legislated by the word. It is legislated by human logic, reason, and dogma. And that's the premise for the false religion of Judaism that our author is trying to say you can bring Jesus into. That's the end time deception. That's the end time deception. And I'm thankful that I have traveled down that road from traditional Calvary Chapel into the Hebrew roots and messianic movement to teach the Torah portion over 400 times week in, week out for over a decade to associate with the, all of those leaders in the Hebrew roots and messianic movement so that I could now be taken out of that to communicate a full spectrum message of redemption and be the voice of Messiah in these days through the Holy Spirit as those of us that are circumcised of heart are all the voice of Messiah in these days. We have a message. And it's a message that is contained and coded within the book of Revelation. That's why there is so much pushback. And that's why there is such an anointing on this ministry for this message to go out. Because it truly is the narrow road that leads to life. And ultimately it ends us up at the feet of our Savior, not at the feet of a rabbi or a Levitical priest. You don't want to end up there because you'll be inside of the gates and you won't have a right to eat from that beautiful altar that the Messiah is going to set his feet upon when that Mount of Olives splits. 
we do have a legitimate change that has been authorized by the Messiah. That's the only change that we have the right to exercise. We cannot exercise a change in Torah based upon what's inconvenient and impractical for us today. That is nothing more than hypocrisy. And that's why many of us have left the traditional church setting because we were picking and choosing back then. Let's not pick and choose now. We do not have that right. That is a literally a red flag. It should be a red flag for all of us. The point to understand, and I'll close with this, is Genesis chapter 49 verse 10. It is not a change of Torah to enact the change in Torah that has always been right there in Torah, is it? I'm not changing Torah if the Messiah has the authority to enact the change in Torah that has already and always been there. That is a huge huge thing that people need to have clarification on. Now, conversely, the truth of the matter becomes to refuse the change that has always been there in Torah as prophecy, which our author refuses to acknowledge. To refuse the change that has always been there in Torah as prophecy is actually to diminish alt, isn't it? It's to diminish jot and tittle from Torah, Matthew 5, verse 17. What irony. The charge that's been levied against us is actually the charge that they are actually breaking. And you see that again in Acts chapter 6, verse 11 at the stoning of the first martyr. Yahushua, crucified and resurrected, goes to sit down at the right hand of the Father, and then he stands up to honor the first martyr of the New Testament saints as Stephen is being stoned because they charged him, levied him with a charge of what we are now being levied with ourselves. So welcome to the company of the great saints. Welcome to the company of the great saints, as it says in the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. So, to me, this has been a great exercise in crucifying my flesh. It's given me great empathy and compassion because I can understand the maze that our author has found himself in. And his belief is that I put him there. But in reality, systematic covenant theology and understanding the premise of the covenants of promise will set us free from the maze of man's religion and lead us to the redemptive work that Yahushua has given us Torah by by his blood-pierced hands. And it's an amazing journey. And I'm so blessed that thousands and thousands are joining us on this great journey in these last days it's it's truly amazing truly amazing so with that maybe we have had some questions or um comments anybody maybe um yes 
Oh, we need, I think we might need a microphone. Uh, another uh, scripture that bears witness to what you're saying is uh, um, Deuteronomy 18, uh, verse 15, where Moses says that there will be a prophet like unto him, and if you don't, and you will listen to him, and that's where they get the whole aim of the Torah is Messiah, and it goes on. If you uh, carry it through verse 20, it's really quite fascinating, but yeah, thank you. Thank you. Wow. Anybody else um, on the internet audience there? We have him coming out from the... Mission control. Well, you kept on saying the the author denies the change, and I, and I missed the first part. So I'm it was just, who are you talking about there? Well, this the, um, this, this teaching today was based upon an article that was entitled "The Malkitzedic Two Book Theory Debunked." So I was addressing that article, and the premise of the article was that the Book of the Covenant and the Book of the Law were one and the same, okay. which I, if you look in the links below this video when it's online, I've addressed that, and um, hopefully through this teaching and the subsequent article below, demonstrated and communicated through reams of Scripture that, in fact, the book of the law and the book of the covenant are separate and distinct, which is, which is um, the whole point, yes. Thank you. Over here. Um, I had read Isaiah 22, and it talks about... Um, throwing Shebna out and I looked up the names of those and it uh, what came up was that this was a representation of Yahuwah throwing out the Levitical priesthood and he's or establishing Yahusha's priesthood so you can research that but Isaiah 22 is Hallelujah. verifying it at the same time Amen. Amen. Anybody else? So I just hope that this can um, definitely, if you want to dig into the article that we have linked below, um, you'll get the full, the full discourse and understand the polemic because it truly is an end time revelation. And again, I'm, I'm excited. This gave me an opportunity to, um, again, reach a whole new group of people. And um, what I thought initially might be a curse has ended up being a huge, a huge blessing. And you have to go through those fires to be able to reach people that you wouldn't normally reach. And that's the amazing thing. So again, be patient. This is the preservation of the saints. Yes, we have one more question here. We have a hot mic in the back. Yes. Judah, Yehuda. Oh, okay. What are they doing back there? No, we have one in the front. You know, when you're teaching, um, I, I feel like I just want to sob. There's so much more in what you're sharing and what you're revealing through answering this paper. 
that I just, I see even more depth of the scripture for a believer who's walking in such a way where our desire is to walk as set apart as our king. And I link, I look at what you teach. I look at it in perspective of my home. So I I hope this blesses someone, even who's listening. When I look at my six children and the instruction that I give them, it comes out of my love for them. I don't look at one particular child as greater than the rest, therefore to receive a greater inheritance or a more set-apart instruction. And when I would go through Scripture, even when I was 18, 19, I would baffle at how the Levitical priesthood was given a higher, more set-apart job as to keep themselves clean and set apart from the world, set apart from the dead and anything that was to whore, unclean, or to my, I think I said that right. I see the love of the Father in bringing this covenant to a greater group of people. I see his love looking upon his children as not one elevated beside another. What he originally wanted, a kingdom and an intimacy of friends who walked as he did, as set apart as he was. And that institution of the law, because their hearts didn't desire it. When I look at my six and giving them my blessing and giving them honor and favor and listening to what you're teaching and the depth, there is so much depth. The generation after this, is, it, this is exploding. And the generation after this, the children we see here in our rooms, in our congregations, in our meeting places, are going to explode in this priestly, set-apart, innocent, pure, and spotless from the world kingdom. You and shall be a holy nation and a kingdom of and you are speaking <clears throat> as a mother. I'm going to speak as a pastor. We must support you. We must support this ministry that is coming forth. And um, I, for one, am doing that and will continue to do that. And we as an assembly <clears throat> must do that. We must support you. You have the gift of teaching, but you also are a human. And in that humanity, that's where we're with you. We're behind you. Thank you. Praise Yah. It's a, it's, it's a tough work, but to, to be able to work through it is, I think, my, my um, calling in my life because it's, it's all part of that refining, is working through all the emotion to be able to um, do something where you're actually going to be able to connect with people and then you find out that you're through a vehicle like this you end up reaching a bunch of people that you would never have had as an audience so the father is in control and he uses the things that maybe set you on your heels initially because initially I was like oh please don't send me that article I don't want to read it please don't publish it because I knew that there would be ramifications, and I knew that it was something that would be challenging for me. But it's actually been an amazing journey, and now it's going to be able to reach subsequent people that um, 
Again, we've had many people um, ask us in the ministry, well, have you seen this? Have you read this? And we said, wait, be patient. We will um, address it. But it will be in a teaching manner to help, not in a combative way. But let's help. Let's edify the body and, and try and get me out of it, try and get the author out of it. Because truly, it's about the message. That's what we want to do. So, Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to your people. You have restored us and returned us back into covenant fidelity through the covenants of promise. Abba, I thank you, Abba, and we give all honor and glory to your name, Yahweh, through your Son, who sits at your right hand, Yahushua, our Kohen Haggadah. Amen. Amen. Be blessed. Be blessed.